Well, for you take the Word of God and turn to Mark chapter number 14 this morning. Mark chapter number 14. We'll pick up with our verse-by-verse exposition of the book of Mark this morning. And truly come to, again, just my estimation. So take it or leave it. So what is one of the most sobering passages in all of Scripture? Um, so let us pray that the Lord would use it in a way this morning to bring us to Himself. If you're willing and able, please stand for the reading of Scripture out of reverence for it. We'll take our reading up this morning in verse number 32, and we'll end in verse number 44. Mark writes, by inspiration of the Spirit of God, in verse 32, Then they came to a place which was named Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took Peter, James, and John with him, and he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. And then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. Stay here and watch. He went a little farther and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Then he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again he went away and prayed and spoke the same words. And when he returned, he found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And then he came the third time and said to them, Are you sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners." Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Let's pray. Father, we come to you again asking for help. Father, we enter into my holy place this morning, into the Word of God, but even more than that, than that Father, into our Savior's life and heart. Father, there's a deep shroud of mystery that surrounds it. I don't even pretend to understand the tip of the iceberg. In some sense, I don't need to. But Father, I do want to believe it with all my heart. And I do want to believe it in such a fashion but it causes me to deny myself, take up my cross and follow you without any hesitation, any reservation, Father, with complete commitment and resolve. So, Father, show us Christ this morning. Magnify his name. Help us, Father, to, to see in some way his groanings, his sufferings, his agony, and what he determined to do, Father, 
according to your will, but also on our behalf. So Father, go with us now. The next hour, sober our hearts, Father. Give us a reverence of spirit. Um, Teach us your word. Father, stay our minds. Help us to remove distractions from our thoughts, Father. Help us just to read your word, understand your word, believe your word. Father, that's what we need this morning. We simply need you to do the impossible and the unthinkable. And it's all for your glory and the magnification of Jesus Christ. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you. The great, late, faithful man of God, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, is preaching a sermon on this very subject. And he gives us these words as he begins his discourse. He says, We have thus come to the gate of the Garden of Gethsemane. Let us now enter. But first let us put off our shoes from our feet, our shoes from our feet as Moses did. When he saw, when he also saw the bush which burned with fire and was not consumed, surely we may say with Jacob, How dreadful is this place. I tremble at the task, Spurgeon said, which lies before me. For how shall my feeble speech describe those agonies for which strong crying and tears were scarcely an adequate expression? I desire with you to survey the sufferings of our Redeemer, but oh, may the Spirit of God prevent our mind from thinking all to miss or our tongue from speaking even one word which would be derogatory to Him, either in His immaculate manhood or His glorious Godhead. He goes on to say, It is not easy when you're speaking of the One who is both God and man to observe the exact line of correct speech. It's so easy to describe the divine side in such a manner as to trench upon the human, or to depict the human at the cost of the divine. Make me not an offender for a word if I should err. A man had need himself to be inspired or to confine himself to the very words of inspiration, fitly to speak at all times upon the great mystery of godliness. God manifest in the flesh. And especially when he has to dwell upon most upon God so manifest in suffering flesh that the weakest traits in manhood become the most conspicuous. Spurgeon ends it with this, O Lord, open Thou my lips that my tongue may utter right words. In some sense, I sympathize with the faithful man Spurgeon this morning. We spend this morning gazing into a mystery. A grand and a holy mystery into which we wonder and at times even recoil at the very thought of attempting to plumb the depths of such inexhaustible truths, so many questions, so much mystery. There's somewhat of an excitement this morning because the truth here is unparalleled. Um, It's hard to think about truth more grand than this that will reach the depths of our souls and cause us to abound in joy at what Christ has accomplished on our behalf. Yet at the same time, um, as Spurgeon said, for the preacher, for the teacher, for the man who, or the woman who tries to communicate, communicate such glories, we, we, we somewhat tremble not to get it right, or to, to try to get it right. 
To speak of Him in an honorable way. To not take it too far in His humanity, nor take it too far in His divinity, but to hold these things in, in somewhat of a balance. So there's one sense of excitement and at the same time some sense of reservation and reluctance to approach such glorious truths. And we know that the assignment of the teacher or the preacher, the pastor, is to study the text, to break down the text, to seek to put it into preachable form. The truths on the pages before us. Then another question arises, how do you frame in preachable form the cries and the groans of our Lord? Imagine for a moment walking into a room if you've ever had that opportunity to announce or relate the death of a husband who's been married to his wife for 50 years. And to hear her groans and to hear her cries as she learns that she had suddenly lost the companion of the ages, the one whom she loved for so long. Imagine recording those. It would almost be an insult to take them into an academic class or a, uh, and take a professor and ask questions like, was she sincere? Um, and we'll measure it. Was it justified the way that she acted? And we'll measure it by how long she cried, the volumes of the cry, the groanings, the, um, the things that she said, the things that she did, and the nonverbal cues. Um, when if you had been there, you wouldn't have questioned it at all. The danger of many commentators, and maybe the danger of us this morning, is to come to the passage of Scripture and to try to pick it apart in an academic way and, and to justify it and to reconcile it and answer all the questions. Why would He pray in such a way? I mean, if He's God, then, then doesn't He know? Is He praying for the, cap, the, the cup to, be, to be, be taken away from Him? And if He's God, why the agony? And, and what we can do this morning is, is, is lose, lose a bit of reverence in the, uh, in the pursuit of academia and trying to get it right and to reconcile and to answer all your questions and, to, and to, 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 to rub out all the wrinkles in our theology and walk away a little bit more astute this morning. And that's not my goal. My goal is that you might hear Him. Because if you hear the cries, and if we see this morning the agonies of our Lord, then you won't question, question the genuineness, His authenticity. If you'll see what terrified Him, if you'll see the horror that was before Him, and you'll hear the voice of God this morning, it'll forever change your life. So I've come to the conclusion on many things that my goal as a preacher and your pastor and your brother in Christ as to stand behind the pulpit is simply to proclaim the truths. To help us understand as much as we can uh, the, the, the great mysteries of godliness, the great mystery of God Himself, Jesus Christ, both divine and human, and how all of that comes together is divine sovereignty, yet human responsibility. Um, that God is three, yet He's one. I, I will do my best, but at the end of the day, I, 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 I rest in the reality that, 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 that my ultimate goal cannot be to explain those things which God did not explain, but to proclaim them in such a way that you believe them. 
If that's why John wrote his gospel, that's why the, the, the words are ever before us within the scriptures. It is not so much that you can have all the answers to your questions. We, uh, Deuteronomy 29, 29, we leave the secret things to the Lord. And we give heed to those things which he has revealed to us, that we revel in the glories that he reveals to us even this morning. And we revel in the, in the glories that he does not. So I don't know what questions you bring to the text this morning, but the chances are that I will not answer them. But simply proclaim, attempt to proclaim the glorious realities that lie before us. One Christian in ages past said, Gethsemane is not a field of study for our intellect. It is a sanctuary for our faith. It is where we go to meet Christ. It is where we go to see Him. It is where His heart is possibly most clearly revealed as it relates not only to the Father, but also to us. And thus, the goal of this morning and the goal of the Christian life and the goal of every morning after this is that, is that, is that as we come to the text of Scripture, no matter where it's at, is as Nathan communicated even in Sunday school this morning, it is to find Christ. It is to see Him on the pages. It is to find Him there. It is, even if it is a separate truth or something that seems uh, somewhat not even, even correlates to the person of Christ, it is to find out how uh, it is built upon Him as a foundation. It is quickly to run to the Gospel and to find Him and to believe in and on Him. So we come to Gethsemane this morning as... Spurgeon, I pray, um, encouraged us, exhorted us to um, a reverence and a holy ground, not um, a field of study for our intellect, but as a sanctuary um, for our faith. So let us go. The first thing that I would like to, 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 for you to see as we try to paint the picture for you this morning of our Lord um, is the place. And the place is called Gethsemane. Verse 32, you read these words, and they came to a place which was named Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. The place is a place called Gethsemane. Um, you'll remember that up to this point, our Lord has been making his way towards the cross. Um, we've outlined that as the book of Mark has outlined that. And, and in some ways brought in other gospels to get the fullness of the picture. Um, he's on his way to the cross. He's on his way to Golgotha. Um, he's, he's initiated conflict time and time again with the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the chief priests. Um, and in some sense, it's become, becoming clearer and that his end is near, not only to him, but even to his disciples. Sorrow is beginning to overwhelm and overtake them. Um, he's just left the upper room. He's discoursed with them for possibly hours. He's taken the Passover. He's instituted a new Passover in some sense we refer to as the Lord's table. He's communicated His death in John 13 through 16 through many discourses that He must go away that the Spirit may come. Um, he's represented His body to them in the, in, in the bread and the cup that it would be broken for them, that it would be shed for them. I mean, he exits, the text tells us previous to this, they sing a hymn and they go out to the Mount of Olives. They begin a new journey outside the upper room and outside of the Mount of Olives, they come into a place that is referred to as Gethsemane. 
Gethsemane, this, this word, is a, it's literally a transliteration, meaning um, that it retained the name. But it comes from a concept of two Hebrew words that are linked together that literally uh, mean oil press. Somewhere uh, in between the upper room and the Mount of Olives, they now entered into a place in which um, is, is uh, the, the term there, place, it speaks of an enclosed piece of ground, most commonly used of, of a field or a piece of land. John tells us, though, it's a garden. Mark doesn't, but John does. A garden that literally means the oil press. That, that what they've came to is, is possibly an olive grove in which there was an oil press within it, that the olive oil was a precious commodity in those days in the Middle East. And, and it would be a place in which they would be gathered and they would be pressed and that the oil would be um, manufactured and it would be uh, produced and, and, and farmed out and sold um, as as it was a, a, a precious commodity in those days for a number of reasons. And our Lord may just tell us that because it was um, somewhat of even a metaphor. That as olives are crushed there to produce something that would be a benefit to the world. There would be two here in Gethsemane that our Lord Himself, Jesus Christ, would be crushed in agony for a greater purpose and a greater benefit. This wasn't the first time that they had came to um, the Garden of Gethsemane. John tells us in John chapter number 18 and verse number 1 and 2, this is his parallel portion, that this is somewhere that they had often went. John 18 verse 1 and 2 says, When Jesus had spoken these words, He went out with His disciples over the brook Cedron, where, where there was a garden, which He and His disciples entered and and Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place. For Jesus often met there with his disciples. This was a very familiar place. It was so familiar that we see the purpose in it. So we see the place, and second is the purpose. What was the purpose? Well, part of the purpose, I believe, was, was that at the culmination of the prayer, at the ending of the prayer, that it would be a place that Judas would know. Um, providentially, our Lord would arrange it such that it would not be hard to find. Um, our Lord was ready to give Himself up as a sheep um, to the slaughter. He would go as a sheep um, without a word. He, he wouldn't put up a fight And when fights are put up in the future. Um, and the Scriptures tell us that He would tell Peter to stay his sword, that it was time for him to drink the cup. But initially, the purpose is not for that. That would be a secondary purpose or a later purpose. The initial primary and pressing purpose of our Lord of going to the garden was to pray. Our Lord determines that in the time of His ministry and in the middle of the night, one of the Gospel writers clue us in that it's midnight. It's a midnight hour. It's a cold night. John tells us, or actually we read in the book of Mark as well as the other Gospels that we know that it was cold because they built a fire to be warm. We read that last week. Peter um, gathers around and, uh, his enemies and warms himself by the fire. Why? Because um, it's a cold night. It's a late night. They talked for hours. They've left the upper room. They went into this garden. Why? Because this is probably a place where they frequented often, whether to minister, um, to, to, to rest, to decompress, to talk about ministry, and, and most often possibly even to, to simply pray. One of the most astounding things to me is, as I think about the great mystery of, of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is, is that, that He was a man of prayer. That's what we learn all throughout the Scriptures. Particularly in the Gospels, Mark comes out swinging in Mark 31 
or Mark 1 and 35, telling us that, that our Lord went to a place and prayed. Prior to ministering, after ministry, um, prior to preaching, after to preaching, after he's consumed all day with healings in the public light, ministering to the lost, um, oftentimes we find our Lord going to pray. Luke chapter 5 and verse 16, in between healings, where do we find him? Entertaining himself, finding some sort of recreation. No, we find him praying. Luke chapter 6 and verse number 12 says that now when it came, it came to pass in those days that he went out to the mountains to pray and continued all night to pray in prayer to God. Luke chapter 9, he prays before the feeding of the 5,000. John chapter 17, he ends his night in discourse in the upper room with one of the greatest prayers that you'll ever read of our Lord, possibly the most extensive, as he prays for himself in relationship to the Father, and he prays for those whom the Father has given him. And he prays for the church, he prays for you, he prays for me. Almost 2,000 years removed. And one of the great indications that he was a man of prayer is possibly in Matthew chapter 6, the Sermon on the Mount. Um, in other places, Luke as well, or particularly Luke, sorry, um, in which um, the disciples gather around our Lord and they ask Him, Lord, teach us to pray. He must have been a man of prayer. He must have been a man who constantly depended upon the Lord. He must have been a man who knew how to enter in boldly to the throne room of grace, yet at the same time enter in with a tenderness pleading on behalf of Himself as well as His disciples and others and even you. He knew what it, was what it was like to spend time in the secret place. He knew what it was like to separate himself from ministry and life when he could have given more to the ministry and he could have given more to his disciples and he could have been more useful seemingly out in the, to the world. He could have utilized every second to engage. He sees the necessity of prayer. It's so intriguing. It's so astonishing. And so many questions. It's such a mystery. Some would suppose that he does it simply to leave us a pattern. This is why he's baptized, that this is why he does the things that he does, that he simply, he's like a, a divine being in a human carcass, and it's like a genie in a bottle, that the substances never mingle, they're never mixed. His humanity is divinity. And what Jesus has done, he's came down with teachings, and he's came down with an example. He really didn't need to pray. Well, they'll argue. That he simply does it so that it'll leave a pattern for us to pray, that we'll know what to do, that we'll follow in it. And there's a sense in which that's true. But the great divine mystery and the great mystery of the scriptures and Jesus himself is that, that I believe he left us a pattern because he was the pattern. The writer of Hebrews tells us that he became like us in all points. That it was more than actually um, emblemizing what dependence upon God looked like. Literally, our Lord depends upon the Father. You know, there's a self-imposed weakness. There's a, a, a Paul tells us in Philippians that that he humbled himself and he became a servant even unto death. That there's this humility that he, he lays aside certain rights and authorities and majesties and glories, never forfeiting his divinity, never forfeiting um, his his divine substance, never giving anything that is essential to the nature of God, yet, yet humbling himself in such a way, not, not, not thinking it robbery to be equal with God, but, but, but becoming a servant. John tells us in John chapter 1 that He became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, that glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John says in 1 John chapter 1 that we held Him with our hands. 
that he cried, that he wept, that, that, that dare I say, that, 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 that he rejoiced, that he laughed, that he was the utmost pinnacle of what a fellowship with God was like, that, 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 that he prayed and that he hungered and that he thirsted and that he literally was affected by the circumstances as he submitted himself to the Father, but also, in some sense, to humanity. That, that God himself was, was, his, was, was truly God, but at the same time, he was truly man. And it's hard um, even to come to a text like this this morning, or any text at all, or even to just try to fathom God himself and find an end of the humanity and a beginning of the divinity. At what point does the divine begin and the human end? And, and, it's, and it's, it's, it's unidentifiable. Why? Because he's a hundred percent God and he's a hundred percent man and he's totally dependent upon the Father, yet he's the creator of all the earth. So he prays. He prays not simply to give you an example, he prays because he's totally one hundred percent dependent upon the Father. Not only do we see his purpose, it's um not only that he may be taken providentially for Golgotha, but particularly to pray. We see too in verse 33, a particular people. It's interesting. I'm not going to give you um, a definitive answer as to why he took who he took, but just the reality that he took three. Um, in verse 32, he says, sit here while I pray. That's the purpose. That's why I'm here. He's probably inside this closed wall garden. Um, and as he walks in, he sits the disciples down. And yet, verse 33 says that he takes three with him a little farther. Peter, James, and John. You say, there's a lot of speculation as to why. I'm not 100% sure. Um, but, but, but the reality is that he had a special relationship with these three men. It was Peter, James, and John, you'll remember in Mark chapter 5, that, that were the benefactors of, of the healing of Jairus' daughter. He takes them into a home with him to see the miraculous. He sees uh, them, them, them say to this little girl, Talithi Kumai, which is translated, little girl, I say to you, arise. He saw this little girl come from death to life. It must have been monumental in their lives. Matthew chapter 9, he takes Peter, James, and John, these same three, up on the Mount of Transfiguration. And it's such a glorious picture as God reveals himself, um, Jesus Christ, uh, in a way that the world, none of us have ever seen, nor will ever. So much so that Peter says, hey guys, why don't we build the tabernacle up here for everybody and just stay? It was like a little piece of heaven on, on earth. There's a, there's a particular three that he takes with him. and he's, There's this camaraderie, even I think from a human perspective, this companionship. But, but, but he's chosen these three possibly because these three will be instrumental in the ministry, not only prior to, but after um, the, the death, burial, and resurrection. But it wasn't always good. It's also these three. <laughs> Interestingly enough, these three that make some of the most outlandish claims against Christ and against themselves and the other uh, nine. Right? It was Peter who is often rebuking our Lord. When he says they got to go to the cross, Peter says no. When he says you'll, you'll deny me, Peter says just previous in this passage, uh, yeah, no way, Lord. If I, de if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. Um, it was James and John just a few chapters earlier, um, chapter number 10, in which um, they ask our Lord, Lord, do whatever it is that we ask you. The Lord looks at him and says, okay, what do you want? And he says, I want to be on the right, and John wants to be on the left, or vice versa. I'm in the kingdom, and Jesus looks at him and says, can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? 
Can you be baptized with the baptism I'm going to? And they say, like fools, we're able. Of course we can, Lord. These three men are three men all throughout the Gospels that we see a companionship with our Lord like none other. And this isn't 100% definitive, but I want to give you my... Um, the, the more that I study this, I think that there is a sense in which He takes them into the garden as companions to even intercede for Him in His greatest hour of need up to this point. Why? Because later on, Matthew's Gospel tells us that His instructions to them, those three, are to remain here and to keep watch with Me. That, that, that it's possible that in the humanity of our Lord as He's approaching that great hour and He's going to agonize like He's never agonized before, that He actually takes His disciples in there with Him to pray and to watch with Him. That, that it could be that our Lord has His closest companions in the garden with Him while He's in His most vulnerable state and difficult moment up to this point of His life for some kind of support, some kind of comfort, and even commanding them that they would intercede for Him by watching with Him and praying with Him. It could be that He's commanding and requesting and inviting them into uh, the most difficult thing that he's engaged in in his humanity up to this point and for them to even share in that, that ministry. He has no true need of them, of course. But that doesn't mean that in his deity or humanity that he doesn't desire for them to be there and aid in bearing some of the weight and some of the burden that he was about to bear. And they would aid him most fervently and fruitfully if they would aid him in prayer. Not only do we see his um, purpose, his the place, but we also see his posture. Verse thirty-seven. Then he came and found them sleeping. Or verse thirty-six. Sorry, thirty-five. Let's back up. We're jumping way ahead. He went a little farther and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. That his posture is a posture of agony. It's a posture of sorrow. It's a posture of deep distress. It's a posture of sadness. It's a posture of depression. It's a posture of being crushed. The term there in verse 35 is sorrowful. It literally means to be um, in terror or amazement, to alarm thoroughly, to be astounded, to terrify. Other places in the gospel, it's used positively of an amazement. For example, of St. Jairus' daughter, it may be, you could rightfully say that, that, that they were amazed in wonder. But it could also be a terror. It could be someone out on the sea in the midst of a tormenting wave and they're wondering whether they will um, live or die and they could be greatly amazed. It could go either way. The context will determine whether it's wonder in a positive way or terror in a negative way. But both carry with it the idea of alarm, amazement, either good or bad. Whichever way it is, it's alarming. Not only is he sorrowful, he's deeply distressed. To be troubled, it means 
to great, of great distress or anguish, to be depressed. Of all the three words in the original language that signify depression, um, Christians throughout the ages have argued that this is the strongest. The King James translates this word to be very heavy or full of heaviness. It's to carry something extremely heavy in your soul such that it weighs you down. Spurgeon in that same sermon says, you will find it recorded as very heavy and that expression is full of meaning. Of more meaning indeed that it would be easy to explain. The word in the original is a very difficult one to translate. It may signify the abstraction of the mind and its complete occupation by sorrow to the exclusion of every thought which might have alleviated the distress. One burning thought consumed his whole soul and burned up all that might have yielded comfort. For a while his mind refused to dwell upon the result of his death, the consequent of joy that was set before him. His position as a sin-bearer and the desertion by the Father was necessitated thereby, engrossed his contemplations, and hurried his soul from all else. Literally, he could think of nothing else. He was so weighed down. And it's hard to think of our Lord like that, isn't it? Depressed. Discouraged. Weighed down. It's amazing to see our Lord with such self-control in this passage. And at the same time in His humanity, agonizing over what was before Him. This is, com this is Mark's commentary on that night. Both words come together to form a picture of Jesus being literally, visibly alarmed, deeply distressed, vividly troubled, so that everyone was probably aware. It was written all over His face. There was no hiding it. He went from teaching and discourse in what was somewhat of a formal or semi-formal gathering in the upper room um, with grave trust and sobriety, but also with joy at times, no doubt, as they celebrated the Passover. But seemingly something has happened from that point. His, his, his normal countenance is gone. The joy that may have framed his countenance in, in days past is, is, is out the window in some sense. Something has changed and it's noticeable. This is what the words indicate. That his speech, his face, his mannerisms, his nonverbal cues would have no doubt indicated that something was wrong. Something was wrong. Might be uh, akin to us anticipating something tomorrow or the next day, and, or it's weeks away, or years in the future. Um, but as the time approaches, it's, it's, it's more overwhelming in our mind. Something brings it to it such that it consumes us. And whether we can prepare for it or not, um, just the thought of it would, would weigh us down. This is what Mark tells us. And Mark goes on to tell us that not only his own commentary, but our Lord's commentary, Jesus' commentary on it as well. Verse number 38 I'm sorry, verse number um, 35, and he went a little farther. Verse 34, sorry. Then he said to them, so he took Peter, James, and John. Mark says he began to be troubled, deeply distressed. And then he said to them, Jesus speaking, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. Stay here and watch. The word there, sorrowful, it could mean literally very sad. It's, it's grieving and sadness. Grief has overwhelmed him to the core, even to the point of death, it says. There's a couple things that that could mean. Psalms particularly, it's an Old Testament expression. Um, that could mean that he despaired even life and prayed for death. He was in such agony. Psalm 42 and 43, Why do you despair, O my soul? And why have you become disquieted or disturbed within me? It could also mean that the grief was so bad that it was crushing him even to the point of death. 
We know from the psalmist that as the soul distresses, there's even biological effects. You know, Luke records for us in his gospel in chapter 22 that there was actually a point at which our Lord was agonizing so much in prayer that he literally uh, broke the capillaries in his forehead and, 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 and sweat the drops of blood. There was a mixture between perspiration and even the sweat that there was such a biological, physiological effect um, upon him that he began to sweat drops of blood. Hebrews chapter 5 tells us that in verse number 7, which could very well be a commentary upon this passage of Scripture, speaking of Christ, our great high priest, the writer of Hebrews says, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, was heard because of his godly fear. Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. That Christ prays in an agonizing way with vehement prayers and, and supplications, even to the point of which he was despairing even life. And he was heard. And it could be that our Lord preserves him in this moment as he's crushed under the weight of what he must do, possibly less than 24 hours. And then he commands his disciples in verse 30. To pray. To pray. Enter in with them and enter in with him in the bearing of burdens, to watch and to pray, not only, I believe, for themselves, but also for Christ. And I'm not going to spend time on the disciples today. We'll talk about that next week. I want to spend time on our, our Lord and what He bore. So He encourages them. He commands them to pray. They disobey. He comes back and He reproves them again in another way. Same thing, He goes to pray and then He comes back and He reproves them. And he says, rise up and let's go. And we'll look at that next week. The next thing I want to look at is our Lord's prayer. Our Lord's prayer. Verse 36, and he said, Abba, Father. Verse 35, that he prayed that the hour might pass from him. What hour? The hour of his death. John 12, 23 speaks of the time in which his hour had come. John 12, 27, my soul is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. It's the hour of his death, Hebrews 5, 7. Um, he offers cries and tears. And he says what? He says this, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Not what I will, Lord, but what you will. And our Lord prays. And not only does he pray, he perseveres in prayer. He prays again and again. And he invites the disciples to pray with him. But what was the substance of the prayer? The substance of the prayer was Abba, Father. Abba was a, an in term of endearment that was only used within the family. Uh, i got a quote here that, that argues that this was something new. Um, in, in these times, a Jew would have never referred to God as, 
as Abba. It's a term of endearment. It's not just simply saying daddy in the way that we do, but it was a familial term in such a way that it was, that, that, that our Lord used it more than once as a personal address to God. Paul utilizes it later that there was this, this, this intimate connection with the Father that, 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 that he cries out, he throws himself as a son to a father, the son of God who comes to the Father. Why? Because the Father is the one who cares for him. He's the one of, on whom he depends. He runs to his only source of, of help and need during um, the most agonizing time up to his life from this point. So he runs to him and he, and, he, and he recognizes that all things are possible with him. He recognizes the omnipotent one, the one whom created the heavens and the earth, the one whom decreed all things, the one whom, whom his will is inviolable, inviolable by anyone other than him. Uh, man cannot change it. Creatures, angels, principalities, and powers with all of their ability and all of their authority within this realm. Um, only God can remove the cup if that's the case. Thus he runs to the source of his agony. And that's the question, isn't it? What's the source of his agony? The source of his agony is the cup. Right? That's what he says. That's the question. Take this cup away from me. Literally, Lord, if it's real, if it's possible, Lord, 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 carry the cup away. So the question is, is what is the cup? To, to, to understand the passage, we must know what the cup is. Why? Because the cup is the source of the agony. Luke tells us again in his gospel that it was such an agonizing account that he sweat drops of blood. Hebrews, vehement tears and cries. What could cause such cries? What could affect our Lord so much? What could call him to stumble? It's what it, uh, literally, it goes on, his posture is, it, it says that he goes on and he stumbles. He went a little farther and fell on the ground. It was as if the weight of, 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 of the agony, the sorrow, the depression was so much. Uh, Luke tells us that it was, a, it was less than a stone's throw away. He leaves the three there. And not only what is in his soul manifests itself, as he gets 30 to 40 feet, he falls to the ground, prostrate, and cries out to God. This is more than just a monotone Abba Father. All things are possible for you. This is vehement cries. This is vehement tears. Later on, I mean, one of the Gospels, I believe it's Luke, says that the, 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 the disciples went to sleep, but they went to sleep because of sorrow. They too were in some sense overwhelmed. We don't know by what. But, but something troubled our Lord so much that, 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 he, that, that, that it's seen on His face. He communicates it to them. And as He walks away, they see Him fall. Onto the ground, crying out with vehement cries and tears, to the point in which in which he will sweat drops of blood. This is our Lord. This is our Lord. What's the source of his agony? It's the cup. It's the cup. It's the cup that he would drink the following day, that very day. What is the cup? It's the cup of God's wrath in which God in that very hour had begun to feel. It is the cup that's ever before His eyes. It's being lifted up to the holy lips of the very Son of God even now. It's being filled. He sees it. Sees it in a way that He's not seen it before in His humanity. The Old Testament is quite clear. Psalm 75, verse 7. But God is the judge. He puts down one. He exalts the other. For in the hand of the Lord there's a cup. And the wine is red, it's fully mixed, and he pours it, and he pours it out. Surely its dregs shall all the wicked of the earth drain and drink down. Isaiah 51, 17, Awake, awake, stand up, O Jerusalem, you have you who have drunk at the hand of the Lord the cup of his fury. You drunk the dregs of the cup of trembling and drained it out. 
Revelation 14, 9 and verse 10 says, Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives the mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day and night who worship the beast and his image. That that which is ever before our Lord is the cup of God's wrath, his holy justice, his righteous anger, his just fury, and his vengeance against all sins, his vengeance against all our sins. When we speak of the cup being administered, we're speaking of the unmitigated anger and wrath of an almighty God that is prepared for sin. It's unmixed with mercy. There's not one drop of grace. There's no patience in it and long-suffering as we talked about even in Sunday school this morning. It's come to a close. And while the average man lives ignorantly and in utter darkness concerning the reality of his sin and what is in store for him as he stores up wrath against a holy God by his rebellion, Christ knows it now in its fullness. He sees it as he communes with the Father. He knows that his hour has come. Some have argued that what Christ is concerned about here is the source, and the source of His agonizing groans is is simply the physical pain upon the cross. The crimes of Rome, the hypocrisy of the Jews, the abandonment of the disciples, the devices of Satan, the trials of the Sanhedrin, the instruments of the soldiers. Listen, I don't doubt that in some way we include those into uh, the sufferings of our Lord and His humility, but as bad as the physical pain is, I, I, I find it hard to believe that that would have caused what we see here. That up to this point, our Lord has withstood the temptations of the devil. But at least three times, if not an infinite amount of more throughout His 33 years of life, He stood against Rome. He's endured um, the the reproach. He he, he knows what they can um, conjure up. He knows what they can pour out. And up to this point, He's showed no lack of resolve. He's showed no breach in His affections um, against them. That what we're talking about here is the source of His agony. It's not the devils of the world. It's not the principalities. And it's not the powers. It's not um, the world itself. It's not Rome. It's not the nations as they gather and conspire against our Lord. He will laugh at them. Um, Jesus is concerned now with the cup of God's fury and His wrath. God the Father is the source. And all those other things pale in comparison to what God's fury will do to sinners because of their sin. That one of the many things that we learn in Gethsemane is the horror of sin and the terror of the wrath of God. That the cup of God's wrath reflects God's response to human sin. God's response to our sin. Sin is a horror in God's world. We treat sin so lightly. We live our lives. We do our own things. We make our own moral standards. We justify everything that we do. And we even abuse the grace of God to do it. You know? Um, We think no one sees. We think no one cares. And we think ultimately it just doesn't matter. Now, part of it is simply that we're just sinners. I know. 
You know? But that's the problem. One writer writes, he says, the more depraved a man is, the less capable he is of estimating the heinousness of his own transgressions. That we are sinners, therefore, is sufficient explanation of the fact that we look upon sin in a very different light than, than that which is presented to us in the Word of God. End quote. That we are the quintessential self-justifiers of those who have chosen our own paths, made our own rules, sinning as much as we please, um, and uh, spiritualizing it, abusing God's grace, or just by blatantly sinning on the one hand and saying on the other, I'm forgiven. Or thinking that simply just because judgment has not come that he, and He hasn't squashed me yet and this nation still perseveres in all of its wickedness that He must be okay with it. Yet the testimony of Scripture is overwhelmingly the soul that sins shall die. The wages of sin is death. And that we are born into this world as the children of wrath and given long enough, we will manifest that sin in a rebellious way against a holy God. And that there is no little sin. It's not just taking a piece of fruit off of a tree. It's cosmic treason against a holy God. And I know that we want to just give a pass over little sins and big sins. Look at Christ. Look at Him. Look at what it does to Him. There is no little lust. There is no little sin. There is no little bitterness. There is no little unrepentance. There is no little unforgiveness. There is no little adultery. There is no little uh, murder. There is no little sins. Colossians 2 says, you being dead in your trespasses and sin and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all your trespasses having wiped away the handwriting of requirements that was against us and which was contrary to us, and He's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Now, the sins we commit do not simply vanish away. They're documented and they're preserved that, 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 that we must pay like, in a similar way to our credit card bills while the, while, while the final debt has not been required. We are accruing. Romans chapter 2 and verse number 5 says that, 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 that we, are, we are storing up wrath against that very day of the indignation and the wrath of God. That there are no little sins. There are no menial sins. There are nothing, not things that, that you can just slide under the rug that each and every one of us uh, manifest the sinful nature that outside of Christ um, we are putting up account we are filling the account to this very day and do not do not uh, misunderstand God's re God's long suffering and forbearance and patience for his carelessness over what we do with this life there will be a day of reckoning for all sinners, there will be a day of reckoning. And part of the problem is today that we don't understand that. We don't see sin in the light of a holy God. And we don't see sin in the light of Gethsemane. We don't see sin in the light of Golgotha. We don't see sin in the light of what our, what our Lord and Savior must now do in correlation to the Father's will, but also to save sinners like us. That our Lord would drink the cup. That not only would He take in that, that account in which you're accruing today, but He would take into that account the, 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 the account of all men. All men 
would culminate. The wrath of God would be poured out upon this man. And I know that we often refer to um, our, our personal Gethsemane or our daily cross, and, and there's probably room for that, and I'm not condemning that in its totality, but listen. You can never truly say that you've had a personal Gethsemane. This was unique to our Lord, something that He had to endure that no other human could ever nor will ever endure in the scope and the measure of our Lord. It was the prospect of drinking the Father's wrath. One writer says, but now in the garden the moment has come in his self-identification with mankind to plumb human depravity and fallenness fallenness to its very depths as he prepares in all of his innocence and purity to submit himself in the place of sinners to the fierceness of God's wrath against the sins of men. This meant an experience incomparable in the horror of its torments from which his whole being shrank instinctively but was inescapable in the pur- if the purpose of his coming was to be achieved. The agony of Christ at Gethsemane was occasioned by something other and deeper than the fear of physical death. For what he faced was not simply a painful death, but also judgment, the judgment of a holy God against sin, our sin, which is the experience of the second death, the disintegrating experience of separation from God, end quote. Thus he prays another way, Lord. Then the question arises, was it right for him to pray that way? Right? That's what you're asking. That's what I ask. I mean, you decreed it, Lord. The Son was there in the eternal counsel of God when it was determined that He would die for sinners. Surely He knew. How could He pray such a way? I might ask, how could He not? Maybe maybe it's more like that was the most appropriate thing that He could do, right? In His humanity, in His deity. If He is the Holy Son of God, could He have prayed any other way? Hugh Martin has a wonderful book. I think it's called The Shadow of the Cross as he speaks of Gethsemane or The Shadow of Calvary. He says, Could He have had a true body and a reasonable soul and not sensitively shrunk from the undergoing the terrors of the Lord? Could His soul have been holy? Could He have truly feared God and not trembled in sorrow and anguish in the prospect of His anger or the presence of His wrath? And how could he have learned obedience by the things which he suffered to save by subduing his natural and sinless repugnance to endure them and thus denying and sacrificing himself? I mean, what's your response this morning as we talk about the terror of the Lord? What's your response as we talk about the condemnation and the wrath of God coming? From a godly perspective, what, what should you think? What should we think? Should it not cause us to shrink back? Should it not cause us to to fear in some sense? Should it not cause us to, to suffer? But even more than that, what would you say to an innocent, sinless being whom that is all he's ever known? It's not like us this morning who fear the wrath of God because we're rebellious sinners and know that we we we, we need it and or know that we deserve it. And we desire not to. It won't be as the ages commence and all the world stands before Him and we shudder at the very presence of God because of all of His holiness. We will will either stand in Christ or we will fall outside of Him. And all those who fall outside of Him will, will, will shudder in a similar way as Christ did this morning. But it won't be the same. It won't be. Because that crowd will do it out of selfishness and out of a desire to save themselves 
Um, that, that, that Christ, as He stands, He doesn't stand in that way. He doesn't fall on His in agony in that way. He stands before uh, and prostrate before a holy God um, on this day as the sinless, innocent Son of God, He who has only known holiness all of His life. And while He knows what sin is and while He understands it from an eternal purpose and from a divine perspective, we know that, 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 that in His omniscience and knowing all things, He doesn't know sin in an, in, in an intimate way. Such that Paul could write that He became sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God, uh, that, that He also self-identifies with sinners, not to literally become sin, but to take upon Himself the penalty of sin, that it may be satisfied, that all the nations may one day come to Him. Thus, he is what, what is poured out upon Him is the very wrath of God in its fullest measure. And that payment which we could not pay as individuals nor as all the nations and with, with all of the eternities and all of the generations. You know, that, that, that the, the idea of eternal, eternal punishment and the wrath of God upon sin as an, an individual lasts forever. It doesn't end. A thousand generations from now it will not pay the debt of the sin that we've, of, of, of the crime that we've sinned against a holy God. And that's what Christ takes upon Himself. And not only yours and not only mine, but the multitudes throughout the ages. That the holy, spotless Lamb of God could do nothing else. We live in relative ignorance concerning both our Lord's holiness, His anger against wicked, His wrath to be displayed. It's, it's not an expression of fear, one writer says, before a dark destiny, nor a shrinking from the prospect of physical suffering and death. It is rather the horror of the one who lives holy, for the Father at the prospect of alienation from God which is entailed in the judgment upon sin which Jesus assumes. The horror thus anticipates the cry of abandonment from the Father. Jesus came to be with the Father for an interlude before His trial but found hell rather than heaven before Him and He staggered. He's never encountered the Father this way. He knows the Father intimately. He doesn't know sin intimately. And now the sin of all the world's going to come upon him in which now he knows the Father in a different way. He which who was administering throughout the ages and will be the final judge at the end of the ages now that upon which is judged. For sinners like us, nothing so vile ever touched his lips nor had he tasted that would cause him to recoil in agony. Nothing. He cannot fathom the thought of being the object of the Father's eternal hatred and fury. What would be a godly response to the cup? I say he could not have done anything else. Not only do we see the prayer and the posture and the place, we see the promise. Right? We're not going to spend a great deal of time on this. Maybe next time. There was a promise that we read this morning that the Father would uphold the Son. Nathan read in Isaiah 42. Um... We read in Hebrews chapter 5 that he heard his prayers because he was a holy one, because he feared God. We read in Hebrews or in, um, in, in Luke chapter 22 that at his moment of despair when, when, the, when the, the disciples would not engage in prayer with him, that an angel came and strengthened him. 
either by worship or by uh, rehearsing the promises. We're not sure exactly what it is, but we see the self-imposed weakness. We see the agonizing and we see the Father keep His promise from councils past in Isaiah 42 and those, those songs of Isaiah in which He keeps Him and that He upholds Him um, in a way that, that He gives Him a resolve. In verse 42, He can say, Men, rise up and let us go. See, my betrayer is at hand. That the agony had ceased that now our Lord has somewhat of a resolve to move forward and a commitment. Thus He doesn't waver in the cause anymore. As He's on the cross in that last time, He will say, My God, My God, why hast Thou forsaken Me? As He begins to fully drink the cup and give up the ghost. But until then, now the Father, through angels and through, through prayer and through, through, through His, His divine providence and supernatural work, will uphold the Son to complete the work. The promise will be fulfilled. He will persevere in prayer alongside of His disciples, abandoned not only by the disciples, but also abandoned by the Father. Why? Because of faith. That's it. That's why He says, not my will, but what you will. I don't think that's a question of him not knowing what the Father will do. I think what he's doing there is putting faith in the Father. The whole prayer is, is, is just trusting the Father. It's faith in the Father. He gets why he calls him Abba Father. He, he recognizes this personal relationship. He recognizes that all things are possible. And, and he comes to the conclusion that it's not my will, but it's your will, Lord. I know what you're going to do. I know what you're going to do. And thus I know what I must do. And he comes out with a holy resolve such that um, I think John is the one that tells us in John 18, 11 that, that as Peter brings the sword and cuts off Malchus's ear, he says, in, in essence, Peter, stay your sword and I'm, or do you not want me to drink the cup is what he says. At some point, our Lord perseveres such in prayer. He's ministered to by angels and He's ministered to in communion with God in such a way that now He has resolved to go and complete the work. He's ready for the cup. He doesn't swerve. You're going to see the disciples fall and falter all along the way. But after this prayer, no, not our Lord. He's going. He's got His face set. He's agonized long enough. And our Lord, uh, the, the Father, has met Him in such a way to give Him the strength to rise up the one who could not stand, the one who cried vehemently, the one who is fearing the cup in some sense, agonizing over it now. We see a different man rise. And the Father secures him. The Father preserves him to do that great and final work. And we see that not only does this reality of bring, does Gethsemane teach us of the sinfulness of sin and the horrors of the wrath of God, but finally, it teaches us and magnifies the grace of God. And that may be hard for you to find after the last 55 minutes or so of discoursing about sin and wrath, sweat drops of blood. But we must also remember that all that was for you, friend, brother and sister. It was for you. We can say confidently and with the utmost joy, we can quote Colossians 2, 13 and 14 as we did earlier for us that it was nailed to the cross. You know, some people in an effort to protect God and to protect the nature of Jesus Christ and the fact that He is quote unquote love um, want to remove hell and they want to take away um, sin and they want to redefine these things. 
That they want to iron out their theological um, positions such that they eradicate the idea that, he, that God could be some mean, hateful God seated up in heaven. Um, and in doing so, really what they do is they, 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 they totally obliterate the, the garden of Gethsemane and the cross in doing it. They totally destroy the love of God in doing it. If that the case, and hell is not real, and it is not awaiting those for whom uh, sin has accrued over the ages, and, and if sin is not what the Scriptures teach, and it is, does not carry with it the penalty, then what did our Lord do here? Like what, 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 what kind of... I mean, He is reduced to a demented, uh, middle-aged man in whom is overreacting about what is before Him. You know? That it is an undermining of the agony of our Lord. It is an undermining of what He is about to endure. It is an undermining of, 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 of what Christ did to accomplish on our behalf. If He did not satisfy the wrath of God, then what we have here is a lunatic who doesn't understand God, nor does he understand what's, what's before Him on that day. Or it could be that the Scriptures are true and that God got it right. And that Jesus is acting appropriately because what is before Him is the wrath of God in such a measure that it brings Him to His knees and He resolves out of love for the Father and out of love for you and out of love for the nations to commit Himself to go to the cross. Otherwise, no one would ever be saved. Now Luke chapter 7, He who forgives little, right, loves little, that a greater understanding of your sinfulness should not cause you inherently to, to just climb under a rock, maybe for a moment. But then you crawl out as you think about the grace of God that is extended to a sinner like you. You think about the hell that you deserve for all eternity and how that could never be measured out even in a thousand generations. And our Lord and Savior, uh, 33 years of life, humbled Himself, came to a cross, agonized over it, being separated from the Father, entering into a relationship with a Father in sin that He had never encountered all throughout eternity, um, which is a mystery to all of us. Why? So that you may know Him and that you may serve Him, not only in this life, but all throughout eternity. As, as much as I shudder at the thought of hell, as much as I shudder at the, at the theology of sin on some days in my natural flesh, give it to me more. Why? Because to undermine that doctrine is to undermine the very doctrine, deity, and work and person of Jesus Christ. What did He come to do? That's the question. That's Gethsemane. And that's the question for you today. That's the question for the ages. That's the question for the world. Who is Jesus Christ? Why did He come? What did He come to do? And what did He do? In the Garden of Gethsemane, it's been hard. It's been a hard week. But it's been a good week. <laughs> you know? It's been a great week. We could easily come to this passage and say things like we learn the importance of prayer, we learn the importance of perseverance, we learn the importance of submission. And we'll say all things like that maybe next time. Perhaps our best response tonight, or today, tonight, for the rest of the week is just a reverent environment as we ponder our Savior. A man of sorrows, Isaiah 53, and acquainted with grief, who took the cup of God's wrath and drank it to the fullest. 
shuddered back for a moment, but God sustained him so that it would pass from us. And the bitterness, we would never have to taste. And in doing so, he must take it upon himself. And there on that cross, which Gethsemane is but a shadow, he did that for you. May the full application, may the final application of this sermon and this passage simply be, hallelujah, what a Savior. Oh, what he saved you from. And to know what he saved you from is also to teach you what a Savior he is. So teach me more about my sin. Tell me more of the hell that was there before me so that I may know the love of God and how far it was extended, not only to me, but also to all the nations. May we preach that gospel to the world. I know they don't want to know about hell, and I know they don't want to hear about sin. I know your children don't. I don't in my natural flesh. But at the same time, without it, how do you display the grace of God in any way that doesn't undermine the work in which He accomplished for sinners? Preach it in full measure, yes, but also preach it balanced with the good news of Jesus Christ that that He took that hell and He bore that sin and He satisfied the wrath of God such that you could know the communion that He's had with the Father in some small measure throughout the ages. Hallelujah. What a Savior. And I pray that you know him personally this morning in that way. Let's pray. Father, we love and thank you and praise you for the glories of Christ. Father, we thank you for Gethsemane. We do. What a plan. What a man is Christ Jesus. When any one of us had even the thought would be crushed. I'm so thankful for you, Father. What a blessing it is to know that you can carry all the wickedness you see in this world today. It would crush me to think about all the ungodliness that goes on. Just in my little simple life, I hear of things it almost incapacitates me, the wickedness all around me. I hear of little boys and little girls, older boys and older girls, men and women who seemingly endure the most traumatic things by the most evil men of the world. And you see it all day, every day. And not only that, Father, but your son saw it there in the cup. And he did not waver completely. He was not deterred. Father, I revel in the fact that you're able to, to do that. Father, I thank you for Jesus Christ and the fact that when he looked in the cup, he saw my sin. And for whatever reason, he saw fit to drink it.
Hallelujah. What a Savior. We simply revel in that glory this morning as we come before you, Father, and say, we are unworthy to sit at the feet of such a Savior. But at the same time, we recoil at the very thought of dishonoring Him by not. So let us give Him the, more, the glory and the honor that is due His name even now. Father, may our lives reflect that. May we walk away with a different perspective on sin. May we walk away with a different perspective on holiness. May we walk away with a greater understanding of your love for us. Father, may we be forever changed. May we not look at our sins in light of the world, but in light of Gethsemane and in light of the cross. And may it cause us to cling to you, Father. May you sober us in this life, but also produce in us an utmost joy at the same time. May we, with a psalmist, just rejoice and tremble at our Lord. Even now, Father, as we sing, as we fellowship, as we disband for a few days and come back together, Father, may we just meditate upon this truth and this truth alone. And wouldn't that be sufficient, Father, to feed us for the ages? God, use it in our lives to make us more like your son and to make this church a zealous proclaimer of the gospel and the whole counsel of God. There is in some sense we are debtors to the grace of God and at the same time know that the debt has been paid and no payment is further required as we give ourselves to you in utmost gratitude to serve you all the days of our life. And Father, when we don't, Will you remind us of Gethsemane, what our Lord endured upon that cross, not just for us, but because of us, and not just because of us, but for us. Father, I simply say, I love you, and may you uphold that love, may it never wane, in Christ's name, amen.